Man, okay, cool. That was fun. Thanks, Jason. And okay, so here's tonight's question, and we're going to do the rest of the announcements uh, at the end. Let me see who all is on. Shelly, hi. Uh, hi, Amy. I saw Jeremy with the guitar a little bit ago. Darlene, glad you came on. Thank you for that, that uh, sharing. And hello, Janet. Bev, hi. Richard, get well. Be well, actually. Hi, Vicki. I saw Darlene there. Yeah, hi. Oh, hi, Jim and Julie. <laughs> That's weird. I was looking all around the edges. <laughs> there you guys are right and well. Hello, Jim and Julie. God bless you guys. Okay, tonight's question is, why not focus our expectations of the possible future on God? That's not really the question, but that's the one I put on there. The real question is, why do we have doctrines and beliefs and expectations, eschatological, judgment, punishment, the end of all things? Why do we form doctrines without taking God into account? And you may say, well, I don't, but you probably do. And so I want to start with a a little story. This is a story about the rapture. It was a long time ago. We were up at the other church. And I was, uh, I had met this guy. I think his name was Gary, if I remember correctly. Is it Gary or Greg? I think it was Gary. And, uh, he lived down right in this area. But he couldn't, uh, he couldn't drive. He had some issues with his legs and stuff. We were praying for that. And, uh, got some relief out of it. That was kind of good after a while. But anyhow, he, uh, he was a big rapture guy, and we were driving back and forth. I was coming down to pick him up for church and taking him home afterwards for a while, a few weeks, a while actually. And uh, anyway, so he he and I would have talks about the rapture, and he was not satisfied with my response to his assertions about the nature of the rapture. And it, I wasn't being mean. You guys know me. I'm not mean, hardly ever. Uh, but I wasn't also just uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, lockstep agreement. And And so finally one day he brought me, this printout of a website, and the main point of this website, and that was one of the last times he came to church and he just laid down the law. He says, Larry, if you don't come to understand this and believe this, and if you don't teach people to do that, people are going to miss it. In other words, if you don't believe properly about this doctrine, that will nullify the work that Jesus did on the cross. <laughs> now, he wasn't thinking in those terms, but the reason that he was able to be so adamant, have any of you ever encountered anything like that about people who are passionate about a certain kind of doctrine? Yeah, you know, and, and, and you listen to them, and because it's not your passion, you have a little tiny bit of objectivity. They would call it unbelief or whatever, or rebellion or something. But there's no way that if you... So like I had a guy one time, this is a different guy. This is a wonderful guy, as a matter of fact. Somebody you guys know and just saw this weekend. Um, he gave me a book. This was a long time ago. He gave me a book uh, on the, on the uh, difference between premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial rapture. And this book was splitting the hairs on the, on the 70th week and the two and a half weeks and three and a half weeks and all these kind of things. And I go, I just don't really find the difference between uh, a pre-millennial and a mid, a mid, uh, uh, no, pre-trib and a mid-trib rapture being that, what do you mean everything hangs on that? <laughs> I go, what? What? And then I have this like, uh, I have this phrase that just drives me nuts. And it's like talking about hell or talking about eternal conscious torment or whatever. And somebody, uh, and I hear it all the time. It's not just one person. Uh, they say, well, if hell doesn't exist, Jesus died for nothing. And I go, huh. <laughs> Being restored to a son's relationship with a father is nothing. You know, being uh, uh, cleansed of guilt and shame is nothing. And, and, and so anyway, I understand what people are saying, you know, that, that it's a, it's a big component in their theology, just like the rapture is and all this kind of other stuff. But those are examples to me of formulating doctrine about things that there's a lot of variables on without making the number one focus of that doctrinal formulation God himself. God himself as revealed in the word. I'm not talking about just some kind of off the top of my head 
image of God. Uh, but, you know, last week, just to review a tiny bit for those of you who weren't here, we talked about these three, these three cycles. And it was interesting, uh, Gil, I listened to your service on Sunday and you have your three pillars and these are not exactly the same, but it's, in, it, it's, it's meaningful to me that we've got these systems that we're trying to help people understand that if you'll plug in, in in the right order, you have some confidence that you're getting revelation from the Father and learning what's going on. So for, for the one I shared last week, there's what the Scripture reveals about a given topic. Then there's what, from within the Scripture, Jesus says about that topic, if he says anything about it. And then there's the access to Jesus so we can come to him like he said to the Pharisees and receive life. He says, you search the Scripture thinking, in me find life, and they are that which testify of me, but you refuse to come to me and receive life. So it's not exactly the same thing, but there's these, there's these little processes that I see woven throughout the Revelation of Scripture and in life. And so we have these little deals up, uh, the icons on the screen last week, if you guys remember, about what does the Scripture say, what does Jesus say, and then what uh, is it going to be like when we go to him you know, and, and actually say, okay, no, so now I'm armed with a question. I'm armed with a biblical question, and I'm armed with a question that has Jesus, Jesus discipline around it, Jesus revelation around it. And so now, hey, let's, let's ask. Let's sit down in a journal. Let's pray. Let's get communion and, and have a feast with the Lord. Let's go up and see what God shows us. And so it's that kind of a system I'm talking about. And especially now, I want to talk about applying it to this. And we've got in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, Gil's going to be hosting, uh, the, um, uh, Restoration. Restoration. I read a book by Jukes, and he called it Restitution, and I knew that wasn't what the thing was called, uh, the rec- uh, Restoration of All Things. And that's a big topic. You know, that's a big topic. And I, uh, we may have different positions on it in the room, and that's fine. Uh, but I wanted to prep us to think about this, and I've been wanting to do this for a while. And then it's also interesting, this is the kind of door that you have to walk through at some point in your life. You have to decide what you want to believe. And so I wanted to prep us on this whole eschatological future last things thing. We started off a conversation on Tuesday. It was uh, full of light and smoke, <laughs> sparks and fire. It was really good. It was really good. And by the end, I think there's a couple people that would agree with me that seeing how things look to God is probably a good idea about stuff like this. All right. Now, so notwithstanding what you already believe, that's the background to this question. Uh, why not focus our expectations on the possible future? Okay, so here's reasons to trust God's role in the future. And here, honestly, this is all I want to do with you tonight. I just want to wash us in the Word a little bit, okay? I want to wash us in the Word. Because if, you, if I were to just say, okay, we're going to have a good discussion. I want you guys to go to the mics. Tell me what you believe about eschatology. That is not the way to approach this, I don't think. Okay, because you get lost in rabbit trails, you get lost in arguments, uh, and we'll finally get down to the details of whether it's a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture, and everything hangs on that. <laughs> no, everything doesn't actually hang on that. Believe me or not, or our belief about it. Now, if there is one of those things, and if it happens pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, and we're around, it's going to be a big deal. I'm looking forward to it. And even if we're already passed on, it says we'll rise first and then the others will come up to meet us and we'll see a whole bunch of friends heading our way. So I'm not, I'm not picking on any of those beliefs, but I want to do this. So here's the first one. Uh, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Now, this is as mean as I'm going to get tonight. Okay. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. And that other highlighted phrase, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Okay, so I just want to use an example. Throughout my lifetime, there must have been 20 dates set for the return of the Lord. And to my knowledge, unless you're a full preterist, he didn't come back any of those days. Okay. Also, in my later lifetime, there's probably been five to seven serious worldwide news type generating events about blood moons. And that didn't happen either. I don't know what to say about those thoughts and those promotions, except that those folks inadvertently or intentionally lapsed into falsehood. (laughs) 
If you say, if I was to tell you Jesus is coming back next Wednesday, and here's why, and he didn't come back on Wednesday, I would be wrong. And at the very least, I should say, whoops, I was wrong. But you almost never hear that, and so that's what leads me to believe there is a nature of falsehood in this kind of stuff. So again, when we're thinking about eschatology, when we're thinking about last days, we're thinking about what all's going on, uh, the signs of the times, you know, um, I've, I've, I know personally in my life I've lived through at least six or seven people declared to be the Antichrist because of news events. And for me, it started with Henry Kissinger, was one of the early ones. Uh, the only reason I think that Trump as bombastic, 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 how do you say that? Bombastic, thank you, I knew that wasn't coming out right. As bombastic as he is, hasn't been accused of being the Antichrist, is because uh, conservative Christians kind of like him. <laughs> You know, if the liberals didn't hate him so much, they'd be calling him the Antichrist, except that would align him with some religious people they don't want to be a part of. And so I, news events and things like that, that's not the way to build these doctrines. The signs of the times. I was just reading, uh, as I was preparing for all this in Revelation, uh, not in Revelation, at the end of Matthew, where Jesus says, and there'll be ru- uh, wars and rumors of war, but this, don't worry about that. This is just the beginning of signs. Well, I lived through a whole season in my life where People were calculating the, the the algorithmic curve of wars and saying he has to come. He has to come right now. This, but that was only the beginning of signs. That was that was Jesus was saying, "Hey, when you see a lot of wars, don't worry about that. It's not then." All right. So whether it's eschatological, whether it's rapture, I mean rapture into times, uh, the very last things, the uh, restitution, as Juke says, of all things, or the reconciliation of all things. All right. Here's another one. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Now that is the fundamental point I'm trying to make. So if the rapture occurs anytime in the near next 15 minutes, that's the point that we will have, we will have made the point of the sermon. I'm not trying to mock the rapture. I'm just saying, I love the wordplay in this in Jeremiah. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. We all agree with that. And whose trust is the Lord. Not just trust in his behavior, trust in him. And so this is the antidote, one of them, to that idea that I propose of, of our tendency to form doctrines about God without taking God into consideration. Let's make him the focus of this trust. Okay? So I'm not saying you have to not believe any of the things you believe in. Here's Isaiah. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So to, to the extent that we think about our, our salvation as, the, uh, as redemption, as cleansing, as new birth, as the corruptible putting on the incorruptible, however we think about that, it's not a doctrine, it's not an event at its most fundamental level, it's the person of the Lord. God is our Savior. That's what he's called. That's what Jesus' name means. God saves. So, another one here is, but as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God. And look at what it says at the end. Forever and ever. So when we're talking about eternal life, or eternal torment. There's there's a, an example here that the whole idea of forever and ever, the idea of age after age, or the ages, one of the objectives should be to trust in the loving kindness of, the, of God forever. Now there's a ton of other scriptures. i got a few more up here that we'll go through. But there's a ton. You, know, like you remember when God self-declared to Moses uh, up on the mountain, and he said, uh, you know, my kindness goes to thousand generations or something like that, but I won't leave the others unpunished. There's, if we were to go back and look at the context of all these scriptures, and I'm not trying to hide any of this, but it, there, and there's some that are, we are going to go look at in subsequent weeks, but if you go look at the scriptures, there's tough stuff in there about, about judgment. There's tough stuff in there about uh, you know God releasing people, letting them go to their own ends and devices. But he's still God. The centerpiece of all of that is the person of God himself. So here's one. Um, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Look at this beautiful line. My times are in your hand. 
Think about that. I know for those of you who have been in Joyland a little while, uh, you probably remember with me that when we were looking at Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2 there, it talked about, and it, it bugged me the way the translators did it, they, uh, they translated the word aeons into world, when in reality, aeons means age. Cosmos means world. And we talked about how God wants us to change our, our view of time so that time feels like an ally, so that we relate to time as an ally. Because through Jesus, God made the ages. So these ages we're talking about, this forever we're talking about, the times that are in our hand, they're coming to us with the personality and the purpose, the redemptive purpose of Jesus on it. And so I, I just, this is one of those other verses. As for me, I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. And then he goes into a bunch of stuff about enemies and all that kind of stuff. And it's not that these, uh, the ability that the old, uh, the, the scriptures and Psalms, the Old Testament, which we've been looking at, it's not that they aren't linked to future events, because look at this one. It says, you know, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent and show. So these, uh, fixations on God himself as examples in scripture, um, lead us to, to, to connect him to this idea of our future and the future. They, they didn't just happen in Matthew 24. They didn't just happen in the book of Revelation. The relationship that God has always been producing in people has caused a set, a sense of trust that he holds the future. Which, of course, makes perfect sense, because he does. Okay, so here's this is a beautiful one in Micah. Uh, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which you swore to our forefathers from days of old. The thing I, that I liked about this verse is this sounds like Micah teaching the new covenant. <laughs> you know, I'll have mercy on your transgressions, uh, your sins I'll not remember anymore. Uh, everybody's going to know me. But just look at that. It's beautiful. Uh, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. So if you're, if you're thinking or talking with somebody about some eschatological uh, expectation, doctrinal expectation about judgment or about punishment or about hell or about annihilation or about whatever, outer darkness and all this kind of stuff. The truth in this verse has to have a bearing on what you think about that. It has to. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Now, I'm not saying that he has no anger. He corrected me on that a long time ago when I was teaching through the, the children of Israel crossing the Jordan. And I, I was at that place where I was saying, well, God's good. He's never angry, never angry. And he finally stopped. He said, Larry, you have to let me be angry. I said I was angry. I was angry for 40 years. But look how I treated him when I was angry. I fed him. I clothed him. I caused their, their you know, clothes not to wear it. I covered him by uh, pillar of fire by day, uh, or, or pillar of fire by night, clouds by day, kept their enemies at bay. So, we're not trying to bottle God in. We're just trying to focus on him. So back to, to you know, your previous fi- uh, favorite verse there in what? Psalms 3? Uh, Proverbs 3, 5. Proverbs 3, 5. Yeah. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Well, you certainly, one of your ways is into the future. One of your ways is your eschatological beliefs, your expectations that come about rapture, judgment, heaven, hell, all that kind of stuff. What happens after you die? Well, absolutely in every one of those things, you need to acknowledge him. He's in them all. None of those places are places we're going without God's presence there. Okay? Here's one. This is uh, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. What does that mean? Trust in the Lord forever. Does it mean that you should trust Him today and you can trust Him tomorrow and in the subsequent tomorrows until there aren't any more tomorrows? I mean, if we were to obey that admonition, that's what it would mean, that we trust the Lord. So when I think about, uh, you know, like when I think about the um, depictions in kind of a, 
Left Behind or, or Tim LaHaye about stuff like that, where where the vision depends upon the wor- the world just going to hell in a handbasket. I'm I'm wondering where's there room in that vision to trust in the Lord forever. You know, you have to leave room for that. The steadfast of mind, he will keep in perfect peace. Yeah, absolutely. And the steadfastness doesn't just mean that you're independently steadfast. It means that uh, because he trusts you. It says it right there. Because he trusts in you. So this is a big deal. Putting God in the middle of our expectations about tomorrow and the next day and the next decade and the next age the next age. And we don't necessarily know when the ages come and go, but ages are ages by nature. The Stone Age gave way to the Bronze Age. <laughs> That's what the term means. It means that it's a period of time in which something is featured or something is identifiable. And so whether we're passing from church age to kingdom age or we're talking about passing from this present age to the age to come uh, in a, you know, like you would in an eschatological sense, it's still a matter of trusting. All right, now this is one of my favorite verses, and I want to uh, I want to point out something in these next two verses, as that will help us understand or relate, perhaps, to the why we need to trust the Lord with our eschatological thoughts, with our thoughts about heaven and hell, our thoughts about afterlife, our thoughts about uh, the culmination of the ages, and all that. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Okay, so stop there. There will be no end. That means his government, the one that rests on the shoulders of who we know as Jesus, his government and the peace of that government will never end. So there's another thing revealed in Scripture about the the nature of the completed and victorious work of Christ, and even more about the very plan of God in the first place for sending and, and, and making this all happen, is that His government and peace will extend all the way through to the end. That means if you have a vision of utter and total chaos and anarchy, that vision cannot be the final expression of that age. It cannot. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So even if you allow for a radial beginning, what I mean, a point of beginning that a radius moves forward through time when Jesus came, it's still speaking of forever, forevermore. Because in our past, and behind the time of all, or preceding the time of all of our eschatological expectations, is Jesus coming. Yeah? Grab a mic so they can hear you online. Thanks. I just want to know, is that referring to our time now, or is that just referring to the millennium? Uh, I find, I mean, all I can do is give you what I believe. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son will be given. When did that happen? It happened when he came. And so I don't find anything in here to divide that. Uh, because when Jesus walked the earth, was he known as the son of David? The answer is yes. You know, I mean, people acknowledge that both prophetically and in dialogue with him. Uh, was he all of that stuff? Yes. So I don't find anything in there at all. And then Paul goes on to talk about the lineage of David and emphasizing the fact that he came from David, the lineage of Jesus, I mean, and that he came from David. So I, I find nothing to push that forward to a millennial age. No, I mean, no excuse, no reason to do that out of there. Uh, except, except if we 
start formulating the character of that millennial age, push it into the future, and, and we don't take into account the very fact that Jesus was, in fact, by all evidence, the child that was born. Because there's no biblical history of there being another child that's supposed to set off things in the future. Jesus is the one. He's, the, he's Emmanuel, God with us. All right, let's go on to just a little bit more about this, though. So on the throne of David and over his kingdom, and I... And again, these are the things we're wrestling with, so I'm not trying to make a definitive thing. I would be curious at some point to know what leads people to believe that this can be successfully pushed forward to the millennium. Uh, I mean, if you know, you're welcome to share, but I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Uh, so anyway, but I do want to see this one last point before we go on. Um, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then this last line is so critical. This is the part about why we want to include God in the formulation of our thoughts about the future. Why? What's going to make all this be, whether it's now or in the future? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You mean it isn't going to be me saying yes? Or a bunch of us saying yes? It isn't going to be some evangelistic formula or some Catholic formula? The zeal of the Lord is committed to this taking place. The government and the peace is going to happen because of the zeal of the Lord. All right. This is a beautiful verse. This is Psalms 22. This is the ver- the chapter in Psalms that Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's very rare that you hear teaching about the entire chapter. But the entire chapter was known by the people standing around the cross. And so if you get down in the middle, this whole thing turns because it starts with, my God, my, my God, why are you forsaking me? I'm a worm, I'm this, I'm that. You know, dogs gather around me, all this kind of stuff. Very, But then in the middle it goes, but you're good. Our, our fathers knew you were good. Then it keeps going and it gets down into these last few verses. And just let this wash over you. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Jesus is hanging there on the cross, bringing to mind this messianic psalm, and it's beginning to come to a conclusion while his bloody body is hanging on the cross, and people, if they're running it through their head, they get to these parts of it. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. What? There's a lot here that should form our expectations of the work that is depicted in this psalm that we know to be the work of Jesus on the cross. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Does that mean people that just get on their face in in, uh, the Middle East because it's dusty? And then back where I used to live in California? No, it explains the next thing. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. All right, now, I'm not going to tell you that I definitively know what that means. But it's perilously close (laughs) to saying that everybody is going to bow their knee. Oh, yeah, and that actually is said in the New Testament. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. So we know that's speaking future to that. Psalm, right? Uh, they will come and they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. I think this is powerful. It starts with the identification of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Jesus spoke on the cross. It goes through the messianic details. If you remember, it says, they pierced my hands and feet. Uh, they, they cast lot for my garment. They did all this kind of stuff. But, but the end has every bit as much value and needs to be assigned as much value as the Messianic beginning does. Because it's still talking about the Lord. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation they will come. Yeah, Gil. Well, you you brought it up, and I don't know that it actually fits here, but every knee will bow. 
just that statement alone should cause us to think a little more, think a little deeply, more deeply about it, because if every knee is going to bow, does that mean that at some point God's, God takes away everybody's freedom of choice mm-hmm. and he says, you're going to bow to me now? Mm-hmm. Or is it because he wins them over with love? That version of it, I like to envision angels walking along the back and going, <clears throat> and then the next one, <clears throat> okay, now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's how I like to envision it. But, 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 but this, is, this is one of these applications. We have to be careful not to form an opinion about what that means without taking God in account. In what way do any of these sort of things make us think that God would celebrate and rejoice in the forced, uh, the forced obedience of people? He hasn't shown signs of liking that. He's shown signs instead of being patient or what was those other things we talked about in those earlier verses. See what I'm saying? So this is what I mean. Uh, is it possible that that is going to be some kind of, uh, you know, all of a sudden clarity is, is manifest and choice is taken down? Uh, it, yeah, it's possible. But to interpret it that way without wrestling through the very personality and nature of God that's revealed is, is a mistake, I think. Yes, Julie? I, I just wanted to make mention I I kind of see it being like the prodigal son coming back to his father and falling to his knees. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I do too. I do too. And that's a powerful story. Uh, the father didn't chase him out there and force him home. He came home. Actually, he came to himself. And he came to himself with a lot less revelation than a lot of people are going to have at some point throughout the, the, the cosmos. So anyway, okay. So here's some clues from the New Testament. Uh, John three sixteen and 17. Now, if you're, if you're a good, good Bible student, you're going to go, yeah, but Larry, it just goes on right after this to say about judgment and all this kind of stuff. It does. And we're going to talk about it. I just didn't want to make all the comparisons tonight. What I wanted to do is just kind of wash us over who God is and what his motive is, what's going on in his heart, if we can discern that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All right. So here's something that we should all be willing to do. Why did God send Jesus? That's not an answer we have to go home and pray about. It says it plain, because he loved the world. Because he loved the world. All right? So now if you get in a situation where that love is withdrawn, you have to say, what was it that caused God to stop loving the world? And if there's something that the Scripture reveals about that, and Jesus talks about, then it's probably appropriate to go up and say, Papa, when did you stop loving the world? And see... But what I'm saying is we can't just assume it. We can't just, we don't really, we shouldn't really give ourselves permission to interpret some of the judgment passages or something like that as being uh, opposite of that. You know, in other words, making that of no uh, null and void. All I'm asking us to do is say, okay, there's got to be a relationship here somehow between what I read about about this judgment or that that parable that Jesus talked about the, Unfaithful servant being cut in two. That was one I was working on today. <laughs> That's pretty gr- gross and pretty harsh. So is he trying to say that there's a part of God who loves the whole world that is going to respond that way to laziness and uh, ignoring the command that that uh, landholder left and that uh, my father, our father, our God, is, he's got that part of that kind of cut people in two thing going on. Maybe, but I don't know. Okay? Um, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now that reveals motive. And motive comes from heart and mind. It reveals something like a decision. Okay? Now, do we have to build the whole doctrine on this? No. Do we have to build our entire expectation of uh, future events? Do we have to, like, try to black magic marker out all the things about judgment or other things? No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting we look at those things in light of this revelation of God's motive. In light of it. And if we get in the middle of a conundrum, that's when we need personally to ask the Lord, I don't get it, Lord. 
Help me understand. You don't have to do that in rebellion. You don't have to do that in legalism. You can do that just as a child. Saying, I got two different signals coming in here, Lord, and I don't understand them. We have to do that same thing with healing because we have a clear as a bell that God wants healing. And then sometimes we see scriptures that don't match up with that. So you go to the Lord and you ask. And, and, and his personality, his, his nature, his love for us, the, the base aspects of him. Like this is one of the things that I loved so much a few years ago, a couple years ago, when I uh, was studying around for some reason. And I discovered in the New Testament, me personally, I discovered, and I'm sure I wasn't the first to discover it, um, that there's only four nouns applied to God. Love is applied twice in 1 John 1, 1 John 4. Uh, spirit is applied in John chapter 4 at the woman in the well, God is spirit. And this is nouns following the phrase God is. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, God is a consuming fire. Consuming is an adjective, but fire is a noun. And uh, 1 John 1, I think it is, God is light. All right, so we have a God who the Scripture reveals to be uh, love, light, spirit, and consuming fire. Well, you know what's kind of a cool thing? Is that if you think about that, a lot of the those weird non sequitur feeling things get explained when you know that the very base personality of God is love. Now, in our movement and in our uh, circles, we have a tendency to say God is love. He is love, but He's also light, spirit, and fire. He's not part love and part fire. He's all of all of those things. And so you can imagine just thinking about reacting to a rebellious drug addicted teenager, how light, love, and fire could all work together. Right? Yeah, Ray? It says that we're going to be tried as gold in the fire. Every man is going to be tried until they come out as pure as gold. This is an inconvenient truth in Scripture that a lot of people don't let go. Jesus said every Man is going to be, everyone is going to be salted with fire. Paul said, everyone's works are going to pass through fire. Everyone. So whatever we, that view we want to formulate about the lake of fire and fiery punishment, because you're absolutely right, Ray. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that is the hotter the flames of a doctrine of eternal torment get for most people, practically when you're talking about them, the more they distance themselves from the possibility of experiencing those themselves. Hardly anybody is adamant about uh, eternal conscious torment in, in flames that thinks they might be going there. Their other doctrines <laughs> allow them the freedom to be absolutely certain about what hell is like. And when you start talking to them gently about, well, you know what, it does say that God's a consuming fire, and it does say that every man's works, everybody's, every work that any of us have ever done, is going to pass through the fire. And they're going to suffer loss. But they're, so but they're going to be saved, what I said. That's what right. Paul says, we're going to take. So, and, you know, and Jesus himself said, everybody's going to be salted with fire. You got to take off, buddy? Yeah. All right, God bless. I'll see you all. All righty. Don't leave your keys. Oh, I can't go nowhere without No. Thank you. Take care, bud. So uh, this is what I mean about we can't stop just short of comparing one scripture to another or proof texting our way to a doctrinal belief without getting to God. It's really fundamentally just applying the wisdom Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the scripture thinking in you find life, and they are that which testify me. Now, one of the bones I have to pick with some modern movements, uh, a deconstruction, whatever, is they forget the second part. They forget that they do testify about Jesus. So because the scripture's been abused in their life, they just toss it away and say, well, I'm just going to go to God, or I'm just going to go to heaven, or I'm just going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to be new age, I'm going to do whatever. Uh, let's just, we, there's no reason to make that mistake. You don't have to come on one side of the camp or another. Just realize that the Scripture testifies about Jesus, but the life you get is in the relationship that you go for. Okay? Um, so here's one. Okay, here's another one. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The importance of this in my mind about this idea of being washed over and thinking about this is that the condition that, that so many doctrinal systems paint of, of the future 
where it's divided and it's all about judgment being divided. It's all about people going here in. They're in the new city. They're out in the darkness. They're in the lake of fire. They're not in the lake of fire. They're not in the books. All of them is, is because of the, the behavior that we judge to be the permanent identifier of somebody's life. And so we think of somebody who seems irredeemable, like Hitler or something. And, and, and we can't imagine. I, I remember uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger is a Jewish radio counselor host, and she said something one time on a station out in Los Angeles, uh, something that she just couldn't, if uh, she couldn't tolerate the Christian belief that Hitler could be redeemed through asking for forgiveness. Because if he was able to be in heaven, she didn't want to be with a God or there that way. And, and, and I, you know, I can certainly forgive her for having that thought. I mean, I don't know how I'd feel about it if I was Jewish and trying to do that and people were being super lax and lazy with their theology and all that kind of stuff. But the point here is that we were the kind of people that these eschatological systems point to as the ones deserving judgment. All of us were. We all came from there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now, the reason I highlighted that verse, and the reason I brought this one up, is you know, one of the big things that is about the future, about eschatology, is about tribulation of one sort or another. We have a tendency to sort of probably not recognize tribulation that exists now and build doctrines around tribulations can exist in the future. But look at what tribulation produces. It says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because, because why? Because this one foundational aspect of who God is has a determinative bearing on the, the value of tribulation and the result of it. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. That's why it produces something good. In other words, when we're going through tribulation or trials or persecution, it's the love of God through that process and waiting for us at the end that causes the, the bad to turn out good. So what bad thing can't. So, for instance, Jesus used the term great tribulation, and that, that's been turned into an eschatological time frame. Okay. Uh, well, is it only puny, non-great tribulation <laughs> that brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint? If, 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 if uh, wimpy, wimpy tribulation produces hope that doesn't disappoint, what do you think great tribulation might produce if God's still the same God through it? Now, if God checks out, like I was taught when I was young, that this tribulation can only happen because the Holy Spirit leaves the earth and God backs away and it's all about judgment now, then, yeah, I guess all bets are off. But if God can be trusted forever, if the goodness of the Lord can be trusted forever, then we have to take into account how we formulate our doctrine about, about what Jesus said in one phrase, the great tribute. Does that make sense? Okay. Oh, also, let me back up one. This is just a pet peeve of mine. Uh, so this love isn't just randomly out there. It's been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I have to believe that that has something to do with Pentecost, right? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. The thing Jesus preached about when he said, uh, you know, repent and you'll receive the promise for you and your children and everything. Well, when Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, the prophet Joel said, I'm going to pour my spirit out. Says God said, I'm going to pour my spirit out on all flesh. So if the reason that tribulation produces hope that doesn't disappoint is because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's been poured out on all flesh, we need to take that into account when we decide what is going to be produced by the love of God. And in whom and on whom is it manifest? By the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit really was poured out on all flesh, that means that every person that we see and every person that's going to live between now and the end of things 
is going to be there. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will be uh, in you and with you forever. That's pretty cool. So we have all kinds of doctrines that say, well, not really forever. He's going to check out when this happens or when this Antichrist comes up or when this beast manifests. The Holy Spirit's not going to be with you forever. And this is all I want to do. This is that part about checking our doctrine with what Jesus himself says. We have to be careful not to give ourselves permission to say, no, Lord, (laughs) because that's a contradiction in terms. Okay? We're almost done. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Is that totally a rhetorical question? (laughs) Or should there be an answer? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I don't want to make a case on this. I'm just saying the nature of the Father is revealed here. The reason he gave the son, and then this comparison is being made by Paul, that if he gave his son who is everything, how will he not also give everything? You know, so there's some room for optimism is all I'm saying. Here's uh, further on Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, it's not a rhetorical question. He goes on to answer it. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written all day long, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, if you want to go back up to that list that says, who will separate us? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? You could equate all those things with natural phenomenon, right? But down here, you can't. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loves. I am convinced that neither death, okay, natural, but still spiritual, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when when somebody wants me to endorse their movie about principalities dominating the earth and, and powers and rulers and infecting all the governments and stuff, I have to go, well, yeah, but if those things start forcibly separating people from God's love, that's not what the Bible says. And I need to back away from that imagery. And and let me tell you one reason why we don't have room in our hearts and our minds to ask questions about confusing and difficult things is we carry these images that somebody else has sewn in without taking God into account. And we at least have to be able to get neutral on the subject and lay it down and say, if this is the first time I read about this, how would I resolve this conflict? How would I resolve this apparent dichotomy? And the way we're learning to do it is stay really close to Jesus and then go and talk to him. Ascend, journal, commune, whatever you do. All right, but anyway, does it make sense? that There's a very strong list of things that Paul says he doesn't believe is able to separate us from the love of God. Okay, so here's some uh, motives. We've got like three scriptures left. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Then it goes on to say, but God. So before I go to the but God, this is where our brothers and sisters who believe in election take the take the difficulty out of this passage of Scripture. They believe that at some other time, in his own wisdom for no other reason, that some were elect to be saved out of this, and others weren't. But what I, I don't believe in that, and so what I believe is that all of us were in the same boat, and God has proven that he's, he's great at getting people out of that boat. That's the whole redemptive purpose, okay? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us. So it's not just his love sitting there as a passive thing. It's him actually applying love to us. Okay? Applying love to us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, this is one of those things that, this this little highlighted section, it's one of those things that makes, that gives me tremendous confidence 
that we can trust our future with God because of what he chose to do in the past. So that he did all this, and his purpose for doing it is so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, whatever you think about what might be coming, what is God planning on doing with the future? He's planning on showing the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants to do. Okay, here's two final glimpses. First Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. Now, that's just some plain old good Christian living instruction. Pray for the people that rule over you so you can live a quiet, peaceful life. Then it follows on this, and this is the qualifier, the explanation of it. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. The God we're talking about is declared to be God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God desires. Now, we, we had a discussion on Tuesday, and it's a, a legitimate discussion, a good one. Uh, well, God can desire things, perhaps, that he doesn't achieve. He can desire things because of people's free will they don't respond to. Okay, it's possible. But all I'm suggesting, without having to make a final decision on it tonight, if God desires something and has the capacity to act to fulfill that desire, shouldn't that be taken into account when we have expectations of the future. And what this says is, he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then it explains, because there's one God, and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now I'm not asking you to switch uh, camps on eschatology right now. I'm saying that yes, It's possible, I guess, for God to desire something that doesn't happen because he desires good for everybody and not everybody receives that good, okay, Uh, in in an intermediate level. But we're here talking about something that was backed up by a monumental action, the giving of his son who gave himself as a ransom for all, given at the proper time. There's a plan behind this. There's time involved in this. And uh, I think it's going on there. Yeah, Gil. And just with everything that you've said, I, I, I'm sure you already looked at it because you guys studied this on Tuesday night, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so the word desire in the Greek could also be determined. Uh-huh. So that God determined. And I think the translators were would be a little bit afraid to put that sure, in there, there. There's some nervous translation that goes on in places like that. You're absolutely right. Uh, here's here's a, another one uh, that reveals... Something of the heart of God. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of this tonight. I'm trying to say we can't just blow off the fact that God desires something. Okay? We can't just blow off the fact that God wishes for something. That's about as vague as you can get. But, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So at the very least, what this says is that God is willing to put up with a with day after day or thousand year after thousand year of real ugly crap and not call this thing to an end because he's patient and he doesn't want anybody to perish, but he wants everybody to repent. So again... This is something that's true about God. We don't have the right, I, I don't think we have the right to go and proof text this and make a total doctrine about universalism, not universalism, whatever. But what we can say for sure is that flowing from the heart of God, however you translate that word, flowing from the mind and the heart of God is a desire that everybody repent, that everybody come to know, that no one perish. And then he goes on and offers some practical advice if you want to keep going on those things, and, and we, we will when we do the comparison. But the one there in First Timothy is just, that's why God wants everybody, uh, men everywhere, to lift up holy hands in prayer. All right, so can we refocus our expectations of him, uh, of the future, to come on God himself? That's the question. And I would propose that the answer is not only can we, but we must. It's nuts. It's nuts to form 
a, a doctrinal system of the future that does not take the nature of God in mind because it's not the future is not going to be formed by what we do. Not fundamentally. It's going to be formed by what he does. We can have all kinds of freedom. Or what he did. And, yeah, and does. What he did. And there's some things he already did that are pretty potent. So, what I want us to do as we go through and consider these ideas is ask yourself, am I giving the appropriate place in my thinking about last things, whether it be raptures or judgment or hell or heaven or outer darkness or new cities or new heavens, am I giving the appropriate place in my thinking to who God is revealed to be and especially to who God has been revealed to be about Jesus or by Jesus? And if not, I recommend ascending or communing or asking God for a dream, however you want to get in touch to get the life, plug back into who God is revealed to be. And I'm talking through declarative statements. And keep in mind that God does say, like I mentioned earlier with Moses, hey, uh, you know, I'm uh, merciful to a thousand generations, but I'll not leave the guilty unpunished. So we have to reconcile that. One of the reasons this is a hard question is a lot of people who are easing back on, on uh, eternal conscious torment and, and don't see that as tenable, they just they don't do the work, I don't think, of, of saying, okay, but there's still these passages about judgment. There's still these passages about punishment. There's still these passages about getting the reward for what we did in this life, good or bad, walking through fire, doing stuff like that. And so I'm not accusing anybody, including myself. I'm just saying it's not, it's not just like you got a, a row of doctrine cards sitting out and you get a chance to pick one. And that puts you in a certain camp. This takes some thought. But one of the things clearly that must be factored in is who God is. Because he's never going to stop being who he is. Make sense? Any other thoughts or questions? Anything from you guys on Zoom? Cool. <laughs> All right, cool. I got to do the announcements real quick, or I'll be in trouble. Oh, I do want to say one thing real quick. Oh yeah, go ahead. I just know so many people that their their gut response is, "But God has to judge." Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there has to be some sort of judgment against the bad. See, this is one of those things uh, that's weird about, and, and and I understand that I do, I understand because because then you know. But when you, when you when that feeling comes up in your gut, go read that section in John where Jesus said the Father judges no one; He's given all judgment to the Son, and then He says, "I don't judge anybody either." The words that you speak and the words that I speak, they're going to judge you. So I know that these things seem deeply entrenched. But, and let me give you this advice too. Uh, what's going to happen in our future is honestly not hanging in the balance on what you think is going to happen in our future. So you and I literally in grace have the freedom to ask these questions and to look for answers. Now we don't all have to come up with the same answers. But uh, but I do want us to have the freedom to ask. Okay? I want us to have the freedom to ask. And when I say that what's really going to happen in the future does not, is not determined by the answers we get to these questions, that's because what's going to happen in the future is determined by God. And it's determined by God as he's living out of his own heart, mind, and soul and desires. Okay? So when people say he has to do this, he has to do that, he only has to do things that are in alignment with his own personality. So, all right. Well, Father, uh, thank you. And just cause us, Holy Spirit, to, uh, to look at Jesus closely, seriously, see him. And in seeing him, see the Father. Cause us to go to the Father to hear his voice, to just do everything we can to not let ourselves 
and not let other people on our behalf formulate doctrines that don't take your nature, your character, and your declared being into account. I know some of this stuff is threatening, Lord, because, uh, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if I believe this wrong all along? Well, once you change, it won't make any difference. Lord, we don't want to, we don't want to represent you wrongly, but there's two sides that can be represented wrongly. And I just pray that you'll help us to examine these things with the confidence and the assurance that you love us and that our standing with you is not dependent upon getting all our doctrine right. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 